The history. Tell me what you saw. The people. Hey, neighbor. The legends. I bring good news. The actions. If you build it, he will come. The vision and evolution of Southern California's desert cities. Boy, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. From mid-century. We're halfway there. To modern day. I'm building something. These are the stories of how the greater Palm Springs region has become America's playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. iHub Radio presents Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. Welcome to another episode of the Coachella Valley Chronicles. I am Randy Florence. Each week we uh, come on the show to talk to people who built the valley or influenced it. And yes, I started out by saying another episode. The over-under was 10. If you had the over, congratulations. This is episode number 11. If you had the under... And I'm speaking to my family. Ha! My guest today, and I'm really excited about this because we're talking about a topic that is so near and dear to my heart. Larry Bohannon is the golf writer and columnist of the Desert Sun since 1986. He graduated from Cal State Fullerton, was named the 2011 Media Person of the Year by the California Golf Writers and Broadcasters Association. He's the author of two books, at least, 50 Years of Hope, A History of the Bob Hope Classic, and Palm Springs Golf, A History of Coachella Valley Legends and Fairways. Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you for talking to me at all. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you answering when I do. (laughs) Hey, I always like to start out the episodes a little bit by letting uh, whoever's listening find out a little bit more about whoever's talking. Uh, Give me a little bit of your background, Larry. Born and raised? Well, obviously, you were born and raised. Where was that? <laughs> I was born on Thanksgiving Day, 1958, in El Paso, Texas, where my father was going to college at what was then called uh, Texas Western University. Now it's University of Texas, El Paso. And I was raised pretty much everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> by, the, by the time we moved to California in uh, 1971, uh, I had lived in El Paso, Albuquerque, Overland Park, Kansas, Columbus, Ohio, and Aurora, Colorado. Uh, Dad kept getting transferred. You know, he was an insurance guy, and he would get transferred to different, uh, different offices. And then he decided uh, that wasn't his life, and he needed to become a stockbroker. <laughs> and we moved to Victorville, California, where uh, my grandparents were living at the time as well. And so my mom, dad, my younger brother, and I came to California, and I've been in California ever since. Uh, went to UC Riverside for one year. Uh, calculus beat that out of me. <laughs> so I, I said, what do I want to do for a living? Uh, and I loved sports always, and I would read the sports columnists in the two papers in Riverside, uh, the Riverside Press Enterprise and the San Bernardino Sun. And somehow I got it in my head that I could do that, if not better, hmm. and decided to go to Cal State Fullerton and uh, get a degree in, actually, technically my degree is in communications with an emphasis in journalism. Um, and so that was uh, graduated in uh, January of 1982. So by the time you got to Fullerton, you'd pretty much decided on a career path? Yes, I knew. Uh, And I I started writing, actually, the first thing I ever wrote uh, was a volleyball story. 
and uh, for the Riverside paper, the Highlander at UC Riverside. Uh, I had already decided that this math thing wasn't going to work out. I could do it. I just thought it was boring. <laughs> and so I went to the paper there and I said, hey, let, you know, do you have anything you need to cover? And I said, yeah, you know, we get this volleyball game. And I said, great. And uh, I, I immediately fell into it. Just uh, this was what I was supposed to be doing the entire time. What was it like the first time you saw your name printed underneath one of your all articles? Um, you know, to a great degree, it's, it's frightening. It was frightening <laughs> at the time because it's like people might, might see this. People might read this. What have I done? You know, uh, and, uh, eventually you go, oh, people did read this and they liked it. So maybe they need to see it more. And that's, uh, you know, where I really started getting my, my byline was at the, uh, the Daily Titan at Cal State Fullerton, where I covered both men's and women's gymnastics and baseball, which, by the way, Cal State Fullerton is a big beat. A big, They've won four national championships yep. there. Yep. Big and, baseball uh, program. Yeah. And so uh, that was big. But the first time I really got excited was when my byline appeared in an actual daily newspaper, which was the Fullerton News Tribune, where I did my internship. Uh, again, covering uh, baseball, junior college baseball. Uh, and uh, so I would run out. That was an afternoon paper, and I would run out to the newsstand at noon. And if the paper was there, I'd buy it. And if the paper wasn't there, I'd wait for the guy to come <laughs> and put it in. So I could see by Larry Bohannon on it. Oh, that's so great. That must have been fantastic. How, how did your – were your parents in line with this career choice that you were making? They were fine with it. Um, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't have any idea this is what I was going to do. Uh, I think everything in my my scholastic background had said that you know I was supposed to be doing something with the sciences, uh, math or or something. Uh, my best friend in the world lives in Huntsville, Alabama, and is a rocket scientist. And by rocket scientist, I mean, he's actually a rocket scientist. So when they say it's not rocket science, it is. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and I think that was what people thought I would eventually kind of gravitate towards. But, uh, you know, sports from a very, very early age in my life, uh, sports really had a a hold on me. Uh, You know, I was one of I was one of those kids who couldn't wait for the newspaper to show up so I could just pour through the box scores, mm. pour through the stories. And in Denver, uh, or Aurora, where we lived, we took two newspapers. We took the morning Denver Post and the afternoon Rocky Mountain News. And I would read the Denver Post before I went to school, and I would read the Rocky Mountain News when I got home. Wow. What and, section uh, did you go to first? I always went to the baseball section. Yeah. I always went to the sports section. Yeah. Uh, and I was one of those guys who kept, you know, I knew all the players and I knew their batting averages and I knew their home runs and RBIs and everything. So even then, uh, I think this was what I was supposed to be doing. Did you play, Larry? Um, yeah, I was a very sickly child. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of problems with, uh, with uh, asthma when I was a kid. Mm. And so I didn't get to play as much. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons that I also kind of gravitated towards golf was because, well, first of all, my grandfather played it. And 
you know, golf is that sport that is passed from generation to generation very easily. And, um, but it, you know, I didn't have to run around. I, you know, I couldn't run a hundred yard dash, um, things like that. I couldn't run up and down the floor in a basketball game. I tried, you know, I did as much Mm -hmm. as I could, but in golf, you didn't have to worry about that, you know, plus it was also a very singular sport. And, you know, I spent a lot of time alone, uh, even though I had these great parents and I had this younger brother who was just a year younger than me. So we did a lot of stuff together, but it was, uh, the, the solitude of the sport kind of worked for me as well. And so I ended up playing golf, uh, especially when we moved to California, played on my high school team and uh, wow. actually was captain of my team, most valuable player my senior year, which is a condemnation of the team <laughs> because because I could never play the game really very well. If I could play it, I wouldn't be writing about it, trust me. But uh, it's uh, so I've I competed in that regard, Got but. I couldn't really do a whole lot other. And then eventually I grew out of that. But by the time I grew out of that, it's, by the time you're 22, it's hard to play high school football. Yeah, is that true? There's a lot of things that determine whether you're going to or not, and they're not all mental or emotional. No. <laughs> um, you, um, w- one of the things that you and I have talked uh, briefly about uh, uh, last time we had a conversation was a few things that we have kind of in common. Um, one of those was that you got involved in the uh, storyteller um, recording uh, with the Desert Sun. What was your topic when you did that? Uh, my topic was how a friend of mine tried to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and you got that all me, into 12 minutes? By putting me in a kayak off the coast of uh, Catalina. Uh, and how uh, that's a really dumb thing for somebody to do if they can't swim. Uh, which I can't. And sure enough, the kayak went over and I'm out there in the Pacific ocean and I'm 26 miles from California and I'm about 30 yards from Catalina and I can't get to either of them. (laughs) Wow. When was this Larry? And, oh gosh, this was maybe about 10 years ago now. Okay. And, uh, had a friend of mine who was living on, uh, on Catalina at the time and we went over and oh we we're just having a great old time and I'm I'm out there doing stupid things like getting in a kayak for the first <laughs> time in my life in the Pacific Ocean <laughs> what could go wrong Larry well yeah you know what could go wrong would be that I would think well we're going to be right next to the coast so I won't wear my life jacket oh. <laughs> I did pretty much everything wrong that I could that day and uh but i did have uh i had a lot of fun presenting that to our uh, storytellers uh, uh hopefully that will come back pretty soon because uh, obviously with the pandemic and everything we've had to put that on hold for a while but yeah. uh, it's a it's a really great program that allows people in the community to come out and and really exercise their storytelling muscles i think we all have that in us but sometimes we just kind of don't get an opportunity to showcase it and uh the storytellers program does that very well yeah that's a really good point i also think it's in my opinion it's one of those things that helps to the localization of the community too where people get to know each other better and they start to feel comfortable with who their neighbors are i think it's a wonderful program yeah and i think a lot of the stories that i've heard have been about the desert itself yes you know some kind of aspect of the desert and so 
Uh, one of the things I really love about being in the Coachella Valley, and I've been here now for coming up on 35 years, uh, longer than that if you kind of include the four years I spent in Yucca Valley, um, is the, the, the sense of community uh, that people have yes. about the desert. I think we're all very happy we're here. I think we're all very protective of the desert. And we don't want necessarily bad things to happen to it. And so we're all united in that regard. And anytime you can find something that unites people, that's fantastic. And I think there's a lot of things in the desert that do that. I mean, watching what's happening with the desert sun right now, I think, is something that kind of unites the community um, to, and some of our other institutions. I definitely have felt that in this community, Larry. That's a really good point. Hey, yeah, we're getting I ready think to. That's uh, a great thing. We're getting ready to move to a break here, uh, but real quick, I, I got a few lightning round questions for you. What's the worst pro sh- golf shot you ever saw? The worst pro golf shot I ever saw was probably Joanne Carner had a chance to win the America uh, at the time the Dinosaur, and she snap hooked one out of bounds on top of a roof and over the over the house. <laughs> That was pretty bad. That was pretty bad. We'll talk more about these when we return. For a Hall of Famer, that was pretty bad. (laughs) We'll be back with the Coachella Valley Chronicles and my guest Larry Bohannon on iHub Radio. Let's just call it what it is. Coachella Valley Chronicles continues on iHub Radio. You are the story. Here's Randy Florence. Welcome back to the Chronicles with my guest, Larry Bohannon. Larry, who were some of your earlier uh, early influences when you first started writing? Um, I, know, I know this is kind of a, a cop-out answer, <laughs> uh, especially if you grew up in Southern California, but... Uh, Jim Murray. I was going to say, there's only one. <laughs> uh, Jim Murray was a, a fantastic columnist for the Los Angeles Times mm-hmm. and wrote in a manner and a way that was different than everybody else to the point where you actually had to read him. Uh, you couldn't miss it a couple of days. You know, you needed to find out. And, and later, as I grew to know Jim, uh, and to, uh, you know, talk with him in press rooms and uh, things like that. I, I studied what he did, how he did it. And it was always kind of fascinating to me that we'd be in the middle of a press conference with somebody. And Jim would ask this question from out of left field that had nothing to do with anything everybody else was talking about. You know, we're on this line of thought with this guy. And then suddenly Jim comes in with this question. And then you'd read his column the next day and you'd go, ah. That's, you figured that, it out. <laughs> that's why he wanted to do that. Hmm. So he could write this, this column this way. Uh, and he did it with not only seriousness at times, but a great sense of humor. And kind of an understanding that, you know, yeah, this is sports and a lot of people take it seriously. 
but it is still sports after all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, we should be having a little little fun with it. And so I always say that to the two biggest moments in my my career were when I was sitting in a press room and Jim Murray walked by and said, "Hi, Larry." <laughs> as, as if Drop he was the mic. supposed to know who I was. <laughs> yep. And the other was when Arnold Palmer walked into a press room and looked at me and said, "Hi, Larry." And I was like, "What are you doing talking to me? <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to be begging you to talk to me." I just got goosebumps with that vision. That's awesome. Yeah. So, but yeah, I think Jim Murray. There was an, another writer at, at the L.A. Times that I liked a lot, named Scott Osler, mm-hmm. who eventually went on to uh, Northern California. But Scott was going to be the guy who took over for for Jim when Jim retired. Only Jim never retired. <laughs> so. There were about five or six guys in in that uh, in that category uh, who were gonna gonna take over for Jim Murray, but eventually Jim was so good and stayed so long that these guys, Rick Riley and people like that, all went on to other sports. Yeah, the few of them newspapers. ended up north. I think Ann Killian was one of those at one time. Um, yeah, yeah, you know. and she moved up to the oh, San Jose uh, Mercury. That, one of the biggest compliments that I could pay as a lifelong Northern California sports fan. Um, was how much I loved Jim Murray's writings. And uh, I wasn't supposed to be saying that in Northern California, but I loved it. No. But, you know, everybody loved Jim Murray, I think. And, uh, uh, you know, and you read some other guys, uh, Dave Anderson. Uh, I, I grew to kind of follow, uh, you know, go back and read a lot of Red Smith stuff. And, you know, what you realize is these guys are writing – from a unique point of view, they're not trying to fit into anybody else's pattern of how, what a sports story is about or what a column is about or what a profile is about. They were doing it in their own style. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always appreciated that. I um, want to jump around on a few different topics here. And before we end this segment, I want to talk about something that's uh, in the news today related to golf and get your opinion. That's all around the stories of uh, Bryson DeChambeau and what he's doing to the game um, by trying to lengthen it. Do you think pro, pro golf is finally going to have to address it or is this good for the game in your opinion? Um, yes and yes. How's <laughs> <laughs> that for an answer? Um, is, is it, uh, are they going to have to address it? Yeah, they're probably going to address it now. I think there is uh, an uproar from the idea that these guys are hitting the ball 360 and 370, 360, 370 yards off the tee now. And it's causing problems with the golf courses. Mm-hmm. Because golf courses were never designed for people to hit the ball 360 or 370 yards. So they're having to lengthen the golf course, move the tees back, and uh, even this week, we heard Fred Ridley, who's the chairman of the uh, Augusta National, uh, where they're holding the Masters, that he didn't want to see Augusta National have to play it for 8,000 yards. Yeah. Uh, now, if you're not familiar with golf, long golf courses can be 74, 7,500 yards. Um, so I think the powers that be have, have kind of looked at what's going on and said, well, we may have to dumb the golf ball down a little bit. We may have to kind of limit the flight of these balls to try and keep these golf courses relevant and not make them obsolete. That being said, uh, Jack Nicholas has one money clip that he uses and he won it at a long driving contest at the PGA championship in 1963. 
and he hit his drive 343 yards. Wow. And he's very, very, very protective of that money clip. And he was not using a metal wood at that time. But long hitters have always dominated the game, and they always will. So what we've seen from Bryson is getting people to talk, and that's always good. I love the discussion on it. Thank you for that. When we come back, we're going to get into a couple of other topics with Larry about the history of golf here in the desert. You're on the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. From the Gene Autry Trail to the Empire Polo Grounds. Have you seen it? Like desert sands through an hourglass. With great power comes great responsibility. These are the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. Cool. Here's Randy. Welcome back to my conversation with Larry Bohannon, golf writer for the uh, Desert Sun for many, many years. Larry, um... In this uh, segment, I'm going to start out by comparing your writing to Ernest Hemingway. Hope that's okay. Well, other than the electric shock, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Here's why I say that. Because I am a big fan of Hemingway. Are you, uh, are you watching the thing on PBS that Ken Burns did about his show? I have, I have been watching that. It's and, fantastic. Uh, I think he's a, he's a very compelling writer to me, and I've always loved his style. Uh, don't necessarily love the way he lived his life, but other than that. <laughs> well, here's why I compare it. His writing wasn't flowery. Uh, he he tell a story in a straightforward way in English, but at the same time, it had impact. In 2011, you wrote a story about a major power outage that took place in the desert, and you described a call from a friend like this. I received a call from a friend who lives in La Quinta, about 10 miles from my house. She had no power at her house. She'd packed up her long-haired chihuahua and headed west to the end of the desert. She was lamenting how the desert, with about a half million full-time residents, just two hours east of Los Angeles, is so totally reliant on power for our very existence in the summer. She was also worried that an entire pork shoulder she had just bought might go bad in her unpowered freezer. I love I that, that paragraph. Yeah. And I it to me it capsulizes the desert. <laughs> you know, in the yeah. midst she starts out the conversation talking about you know, how this two all these people in this desert have to deal with this and then finishes it off with oh no my pork shoulder. Um, <laughs> do, do you see when you're writing about golf do you see the dichotomies in the desert, the haves and the haves-nots? And does that ever impact any of your writing? Sure. I think uh, it's impossible not to have that somewhere in your mind, that we have, in the middle of this desert, in the middle of the valley, we have so many rich, exclusive golf courses where people who are not just millionaires but billionaires live. Hmm. 
And that's about, you know, 10, 12 miles from some of the poorest areas yes. in, in Southern California. Uh, migrant farm workers who are trying very hard to find health care and a way to raise their children and a way to educate their children. So you can't, you can't avoid that. Uh, it is one of the strange things about the history of this valley mm-hmm. that both of these cultures grew up kind of side by side. Uh, you know, if you go back to the 1870s, 1880s, when agriculture started to be a thing here, yep. when the you know United States started bringing in date palms <laughs> so that they could figure out whether you could raise any kind of agriculture here. Well, automatically, you're going to end up with farm workers who are never going to be very highly paid. And yet, you know, 20 miles down the road in Palm Springs, you had, you know, some of the richest people, yes. movie stars, magnets, William Randolph Hearst, coming and spending weekends or long periods of time in the winter uh, to enjoy the area, enjoy the the, the weather. In some cases, they needed to because they they had health issues, and that was one of the other things that kind of brought the desert to the fore was the idea that there was a recovery kind of culture out here for people who had tuberculosis and emphysema and stuff like that. Right. So it's uh, it's always been the case in the in the Coachella Valley, I think, that those two cultures have grown up side by side. It's an interesting thing to watch. There's no doubt about it. You know, one of the things that uh, you said you learned at Cal State Fullerton uh, was never to be part of the story. Uh, But in 2019, uh, you kind of were in a position of becoming part of the story. And I want to talk about this for a few minutes, if we can, Larry, because you and I have something else in common. And that is that we both belong to an organization, an informal organization known as the Reluctant uh, Brotherhood which is yes. a for gentlemen who are survivors of prostate cancer. Um, I went through it myself in 2017. In 2019, you were diagnosed in August, and you ultimately wrote a column titled, How to Properly Freak Out Over Prostate Cancer Diagnosis. What a hilarious title. <laughs> Larry, talk well, to me, if you would. I, again, having been through it, I know the shock of that first call. I know the thoughts that go through your head. But kind of walk us through a little bit uh, of what you went through there and why you ultimately decided that it was important to share it. Yeah. In fact, I, I remember the the lead in that column was that uh, – when my urologist informed me that indeed I did have prostate cancer, the first thing I thought was, how come he's not reacting to the 5.3 earthquake that's rolling through the room right now? <laughs> Great line. <laughs> because, because that's kind of what it felt like. And then you realize you're the one who feels it, nobody else. Hmm. Um, uh, I, I was diagnosed in, in uh, August of uh, 2019. And I went through a couple of really, really fascinating months. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I won't say that they were difficult months because, again, this is prostate cancer and and it's a a kind of cancer that can be treated and it can be uh, dealt with. But it's still cancer. And you're still thinking to yourself, I'm too young for this. How come? Why me? All of these wonderful things that you think everybody else is going to experience. But when I when it happens to me, I won't experience that. 
No, you experience it 10 times more than you think you would. Mm-hmm. And my original concept was I was just going to keep it quiet. You know, I was going to tell my family. I was going to tell a few friends. Uh, and that was going to be it. And I was going to try and figure out how to deal with this in my life. And then the longer I went on with it, the more I realized how selfish that was. That there clearly had to be other people who were experiencing something like this. Maybe not specifically prostate cancer, but some kind of cancer diagnosis, some kind of health issue. And the idea that I was kind of freaking out, literally, Mm -hmm. uh, was probably happening to them too. And, you know, one of the great phrases I've always heard and I've always believed in is that writers write. We're supposed to write our experiences in a way. Uh, Sometimes it's just observing and and reporting that. This was a case where I did violate my own rule, (laughs) which is never be part of the story. And I became the story in essence. And so I had to, I just felt like I wrote it and I, I cleared it with my executive editor and I cleared it with my sports editor and they read the column because I didn't want the column to read like poor pitiful me. Right. That's the last thing I wanted. Uh, and they said, this is great. We'll go ahead and run it. And we ran it in the paper and the response I got was unbelievable. Tell us unbelievable. About I got calls and emails from people I have never met in my life, but who have read me through the years and felt the need to reach out to me, either with their support, their prayers, their thoughts, or to tell me their stories, to share their stories. And when they started sharing their stories with me, I realized more and more how unbelievably selfish it would have been for me to say nothing at all. Wow. And, you know, sometimes when we write something, uh, whether it's a big, you know, 50-inch profile or whether it's a 5-inch brief, we always kind of wonder, is anybody going to read this? (laughs) Who's going to read this? I hope they read this. I hope they're okay with it. And here was this uh, massive show of support from people who had read my stuff. And then you realize, oh, I have actually maybe not changed anybody's life, but I've had some kind of impact on them by them reading what I write. And it's just the most humbling experience I've, I've ever had was thinking, wait a minute, there are people out there who want to reach out to me, who want to tell me that it's, it's just, it was, it was remarkable. And I will tell you this, I was just at the A&A Inspiration, walking around a golf course, didn't have a lot of fans uh, this year, unfortunately. And I'm still having people coming up to me saying, how's your health? How are things? People I don't know. Yeah. People I don't know on site, but they know me on site because of that little picture that we put in the paper. And so here I am 15, 16 months later, and I'm still getting that kind of feedback. And it's just it's just an amazing thing. You must have a sense, and I don't know if you felt this when you were younger, but you must have a sense that people look at somebody like Larry Bohannon 
that's been in their life every morning for 30 plus years is kind of a member of the family. Um, and so a lot of those people probably looked at you just like that when they heard the news. Um, you, you said to me also in our discussion that you experienced something that I kind of did also because uh, I went through the City of Hope uh, for my, my uh, surgery. And one of the things I remember walking around looking at people thinking, oh my gosh, they've got, they've got it so much worse than I did. And at exactly. times I almost found myself being apologetic for how easy I got through it. And you mentioned you went through kind of the same thing. I did. Um, as I was going through my buildup, let's say, to the uh, to what eventually was my surgery, uh, and then a c- couple of months after that, I've known people in golf pros in this valley who were going through colon cancer, and who had radiation and who had chemo. I knew a radio host, uh, Bill Feingold, here in the valley, mm-hmm. who had four stage lung cancer at the time and had gone through a lot of treatment and was still on the air. And I would look at these people and I would go, I'm really skating on this, man, because we can do this with surgery and I can be done. Yep. And I can be done. I'm, I'm happy to say 16 months later, there's not a trace of the cancer anywhere, which is <laughs> the best the best ending to a story you can have. But I would look at these people and I'd go, why are people talking about me? Why am I getting this award from the American Cancer Society for having written that column? Yes. Uh, this doesn't seem fair. Um, I had a friend of mine who, she was freaking out about it as much as I was. And I was trying to calm her down. <laughs> and I came up with a line, which was, listen, prostate cancer is the boy band of cancers. <laughs> <laughs> because it's treatable and it's curable. <laughs> That's such a and I don't know line. where I came up with that line, but it seemed to calm her down. So um, I do feel very blessed that I have that support and that I have come through the cancer surgery without any hints of it, but I still feel like I should be doing more for people who are suffering more from the same situations. Well, Larry, thank you. And and let me tell you, what you're doing is unbelievably important. Getting the word out, telling men that they need to get their PSA checked regularly is the best thing that they can do. So thank you for being honest and open and sharing with that. When we come back, we're going to talk about something a little bit more fun here on the Coachella Valley Chronicles with my guest, Larry Bohannon. when, the why, and the where. This is Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. The 411 on the events, the personalities, and the history that have built an oasis in the desert. Here's Randy. Welcome back to the Chronicles. Having a conversation today with my guest Larry Bohannon. Larry, you just covered the 50th edition of the Anna Inspiration. Um, And according to... uh, co-writer and friend Bruce Fessier, this was the last big event on your list of career goals. 
Can you tell us about I, a few of those on that list, and it, or is he lying to us? No, I, I did. I wanted to. <laughs> uh, I wanted to get to the fiftieth anniversary of this tournament. Uh, I uh, started covering the event in nineteen eighty-seven, uh, which would have been the the sixteenth uh, event. Wow! And the idea that I could get to the fiftieth was kind of. Just, you know, the carrot out there that I could keep going until <laughs> we got to that one. Uh, so that was uh, that was an important thing for me uh, to say that I've been 35 of these now, and I've seen pretty much every great player on the LPGA come through here and, uh, and win this tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, the best golfer that I've ever covered in this valley was Annika Sorenstam. Uh, on the LPGA. It's amazing. It's Tiger, it's Phil, or something like that. No, it was Annika. She won the ANA three times. She finished second three times. Mm. And there was another LPGA event in the Valley for a four-year period called the Samsung World Championship up at Bighorn Golf Club. And she won that twice. So she won five times here in this Valley uh, in a very short period of time and was dominant in doing so. So it was it was fun to do that. I, I think the other one of the other goals I had was, frankly, when I wrote my first book, which was uh, 50 Years of Hope, was to try and chronicle the first 50 years of that tournament. Because I remember growing up, wherever I was in this country, and watching the Bob Hope. Yes. And and being amazed that the celebrities and the uh, the pro golfers would be side by side, and it'd be winter in Denver, and there'd be four feet of snow outside. And I'm watching these green fairways in the Southern California desert going, what are we doing? <laughs> Why are we here? Why aren't we there? You know? Um, so, you know, writing that book was a, a big deal to me. Um, I was able to cover every skins game that was played here in the Valley from 1986, really just after I got here uh, until 2008. In fact, uh, there's a little story that no, nobody really knows about. There's the idea that at one point they were going to move that thing to Las Vegas. And, the producers just didn't know where to move it. And I said, well, there's this new golf course being built by uh, Ernie Vossler and Joe Walder out in Indio. You ought to go check it out. And they went and checked it out and signed a four-year contract <laughs> to stay there, which I was very happy about. Thank you for I that. I wanted to keep covering it. Um, but, uh, and then they, I think the other thing I wanted to do at, at some point was to write the second book, which was just to chronicle why golf, why here? You know, uh, I think people always say, you're in the middle of the desert, you don't have any water, it's brown, it's rocky. Why is there so much golf in the Coachella Valley? And I wanted to try and explain that to people, that it's not just that people play recreational golf here. There is such a such a rich tapestry of professional golf, celebrity golf, presidential golf, all of it just here on our little valley. And... Uh, when I was able to do that and put that book out, which is Palm Springs Golf, um, we did that five years ago. And uh, that was like something I really, really wanted to do. I really wanted to chronicle the story, tell the story to people, because I would run into so many people who didn't know that it's we a, held the Ryder Cup here twice. You're exactly system, right. Things like that. It's a fantastic book. It was so much fun to read, and it really did tell me a lot of things. The, the, the story around the Ryder Cup, 
Um, and, and how we actually ended up losing that, uh, I think, in 91 to Hawaii. 1991. Yeah, that, that was just fascinating to me. I had no idea about that. Bruce, Bruce Fessier had a question uh, for you that he asked me to pass on. Oh. And that was now that you uh, have accomplished being at the Anna Inspiration for the 50th year, can you retire a happy man now? Um, with a couple extra hundred thousand dollars, I could. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just bought the last copy of one of your books off of Amazon, by the way. So that might help. Oh, uh, they're available in my closet, folks. Come and and get them. (laughs) That's great. Um, I think, you know, I've, I've accomplished a lot. I am 62 years old now. And I, when you reach a certain number, you start thinking about things like, what am I going to do in my old age? On the other hand, uh, I would point to Mr. Fessier, uh, who, who left us two years ago at the Desert Sun, and uh, seems to be writing as much on Facebook as he ever has. He's again, pretty lousy at retirement, isn't he? Again, yeah. you know, writers write. <laughs> writers want to write. We want to tell stories. Not our own stories necessarily, but somebody else's story. And maybe our our part in that story in some way, shape, or form. So uh, I'm always reminded of Julius Boros, who's a very, very good golfer in the 1950s and 1960s and won a couple of major championships. And people went up to him and said, you know, when are you going to retire? And he said, retire to what? I already golf and play and fish, you know? (laughs) That's kind of what I feel like right now is that I might not necessarily work for a daily newspaper down the road, but I do feel like somehow I'll keep writing something. That's fantastic. At, at this point, well, first of all, I, I, I haven't even gotten into the history of golf in the Valley with you, Larry, so I'm hoping I can get you back here soon. <laughs> but at this point, Anytime. can you say that at, at this point now that this has been your dream career? Um, I can't say it was my dream career because I never dreamed of it. Wow. You know, uh, you know, when I first came to the Desert Sun, I think it was pretty much accepted uh, when I came here in 1986 that I was going to cover golf here. But I was really just a general assignment reporter for sports. Um, you know, my first beat was college to the Desert Football. Uh, a powerhouse. Through the years, I've just, yeah. <laughs> and through the years, uh, you know, I, I developed into the golf writer because I was the only guy on the staff who played golf or understood it in terms of our sports staff. And we had an executive editor at the time named Jim Lysette who called me in one day and said, what do you think of our golf coverage? And the golf coverage at the time consisted of a very nice man named Steve Gardner who put in the results from the men's club at Tockwitz Creek every week. And that was their golf coverage. (laughs) And he said, you want to write a column? I said, sure. And at one point, I was writing four columns a week. (laughs) So... Uh, I would never have imagined that, uh, not just the golf, but the other stuff that I've been able to cover, uh, the personalities in this valley. So it's uh, more like a beyond my dream job. Got it. That's a great way to describe it. Larry, thank you so much. I can't wait to have you on here again to really get deeper into the history of golf. I appreciate your time on the show today. Appreciate all of you listening to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. I'm Randy Florence on iHub Radio. <laughs>